The best place to play fantasy football this summer is Underdog Fantasy. Their best ball media tournament has $10 million in total prize money, and the best part is you just draft your fantasy football team, and that's it. There's no waivers, no trades, no in-season management. Underdog gives you your best score each week of the season and the highest score at the end of the year win. The champion best ball mania last year won in June, so there's no better time like the present to take a shot at a million-dollar draft. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with promo code PFF. Play 10 of those dollars and you get a free PFF subscription. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store today. Play $10 with code PFF and draft your best ball mania team. edition of unexpected points here thank you all for joining me i am kevin cole uh senior data scientist at pff if you ask me to define for you what data scientist means it means a lot of things and lucky for me it can also include people that maybe don't have the the greatest technical ability so let me let me outline first what we're going to do today on the pod as you see from the description we are going to talk and continue to count through the greatest statistical quarterbacks of all time. I'll give you some of the details on the methodology for that, how I come up with it. But we've already gone through in chunks of 10, 50 to 41, 40 to 31, and so on. Now we got 10 left. I'm going to split it up this week. Going to do 6 through 10 today. Then going to do 5, counting all the way down to 1 on Wednesday. There may be some controversy. I'm sure everyone will not agree with these rankings in whole, but what I will tell you is there is a process here. I'll try to describe it to you. The results are what they are. I don't agree with everything on there, and I'll give you some ideas on where I may disagree, but I think it'll be just an interesting way to to look at everything. And plus, no spoiler alert here, the guys who are in the top 10 quarterbacks of all time statistically are quite commonly thought of being the top quarterbacks of all time. Some of them may be thought of as being more in the 11 to 15 range as opposed to being in the top 10 range, but they are all solidly thought of as being some of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Even if the ordering here does not match up exactly with how most football fans would lay these guys out. And, you know, opinions change so much. We talk about recency bias a lot on this podcast, even a year from now, who we're thinking about as being the best of all time can change a lot just based upon what has happened over the last season. But before I get into that, I want to talk a little bit about the franchise tag stuff that happened on Friday or that didn't happen, I should say, on Friday. No extensions. We had um, a couple of tight ends and a safety who were not taken. I think those, I can pretty quickly sum up what's going on. The franchise tags are just too cheap for those positions. It doesn't cost teams anything. Those positions are at a disadvantageous ability for the players to negotiate versus the franchise tag it's changing the market is changing for safety somewhat we've seen some big safety deals over the last few years which will begin to feed into the calculation for franchise tag for safety so i think that's going to be a changing dynamic that's a position that is on the rise 
I believe, in how they will be compensated going forward as safety, becoming more important even with teams running three safety systems, just wanting more defensive backs generally. So that's changing. Tight end, tight end is just in a world of pain. I mean, if we have the greatest financial boom in NFL history over the last you know, couple of decades, yet if you look at not just good tight ends, not just elite tight ends, but some of the greatest tight ends of all time who have played over the last 20 years, whether it's seasons that you've seen from Rob Gronkowski, who may be the best of all time. Jimmy Graham had some excellent seasons. He tried to uh, sue to get off of the tight end franchise tag, but he was stuck there, even though he lined up wide quite a bit. So he, you know, he's in this era. We have Travis Kelsey, who's now in this era. We have George Kittle, who's in this era. You have all these top, top, top end tight ends, yet the position is still severely underpaid vis-a-vis others. And one of the main reasons for it is the franchise tag. When you have the top five salaries feeding into the franchise tag calculation and you have a limited need position like tight end there just aren't going to be that many elite players at tight end you only have one maybe two on the field at any particular time even if you do have two on the field one of them is basically a glorified blocker in that situation so you don't have the the volume there versus let's say offensive line where every single offensive lineman is part of that calculation so to find five players who fit into there it, it happens pretty easily wide receiver you have tons and tons of wide receivers three wide receivers on the field is the default thing in the NFL uh cornerbacks two to three cornerbacks on the field at almost all times and so on that it just really hurts tight ends for the franchise tag calculation whether it's whether, you know, Jasicki and Dalton Schultz, what ends up happening to them going forward, it's just too easy for their teams to say, we're going to franchise tag these guys and wait and see next year. It's also a grinding position as far as health is concerned when it comes to the blocking component added to the receiving component. And it takes a little bit longer to develop. So maybe you don't add as much value and it's just too easy then to franchise tag going forward. And I don't really see that dynamic changing because George Kittle's already signed his deal Kelsey signed a extension, which wasn't that big, and he's eventually going to age out at um, 33 years old right now. So who else is really going to step into that void? Kyle Pitts is going to is, is going to step up eventually, but he's just going to be hurt with the same things that we see with Jasicki, who rarely even lines up in line. He wasn't going to get out of the tight end franchise tag. There was no way to, for him to get out of it and get a bump of three, four, five million up to the wide receiver franchise tag. It's just going to be tough in that position going forward. When it comes to Orlando Brown, totally different situation. Brown is offensive tackle, which has been one of the most coveted positions in the draft or in free agency or the amount that's being traded for them or the amount that they're being extended for. If we look at the contract for Trent Williams, if we look at the trade for Laramie Tunsil, the problem I think is just a disconnect between the chiefs, what they were thinking before they traded for Brown and what they're thinking. Now the chiefs were in somewhat of a panic ish sort of mode a year ago. And I know you could say, how can you be in a panic mode? If you just went to the super bowl, you have Patrick Mahomes. Well, They had two very cheap years on Patrick Mahomes' extension, and 2021 was going to be the second of those years. They were willing to throw a ton of money at Joe Tooney. They were willing to make this trade for Orlando Brown, knowing that they would eventually probably have to make him the highest paid tackle or close to that uh, another couple of years down the road if they wanted to extend him. But they didn't really care. They were going to fix that offensive line. They were going to bring everyone back, and they were going to take another run at the Super Bowl. Now, 
coming off of that, expectations may have shifted a bit. Mahomes's cap number is now going up into the 30 something million where it was much down. I think 11 million the year before you have more confidence in what they've been able to build in the offensive line, especially with picking off a guy like Creed Humphrey in the mid rounds. And now you have a pro bowl, all pro talent center that you didn't know you were going to have a year ago. You didn't know that it was going to work out that well. I think they feel a lot more confidence. And now when they can take a step back from being in this crisis mode, you can look at what they paid in trade compensation. And if you net everything out, the first round and third round pick getting back a second round pick, we're probably talking about an early second round pick or a late first round pick in compensation. They can look at that and say, you know what? It was a sunk cost. We got a cheap year from Brown, basically a million dollar year because he was a third round player. He's barely making anything. Now we're going to pay him 18 something million this year. So two years for nine, you know, nine and a half million dollars a year. And if we have to eventually end up letting him go, Maybe we get a comp pick back in the process. And I think that's a more rational way of looking at it because the Chiefs, one thing that I'll give them a lot of credit for is they have been very good, whether it's either the player's willingness to sign reasonable deals or their ability to push in that direction. I think it started somewhat with Patrick Mahomes taking a very team-friendly 10-year deal. They got a good, I would say, team-friendly deal from Chris Jones. They got a good deal from Travis Kelsey. So now they're back in that mode where they're not going to make any mistakes. And I think when it comes to Brown, they were willing to do this biggest annual per year value contract. But when you see six years attached to that, you can bet almost anything that what that means is at least the six year on that contract would have some huge number that would be very unlikely to ever play out that Brown would either be forced to restructure through negotiation or would be cut before they actually got to that point. So they weren't going to pay him Trent Williams type of money here, which I think is fair. And Brown is a player where if you acquire someone who wants to get paid, you give up draft capital for them. There should be no surprise from his end that he feels slighted by the fact that he was a third round pick. Initially, he feels he's a top guy. He feels he's a left tackle. He feels he should have that money that it's going to be difficult for a sober franchise that's not going to think too much about the sunk costs that have gone into trading for Brown in the first place is going to have difficult coming up with this. The real question will be, is there any possibility of an extension next offseason? I say no. Is there any possibility of using another franchise tag on them? Maybe, depending upon how the line holds up this year. But I think Brown being long-term in Kansas City is a low-probability event now seeing what we have seen play out with the franchise tag this offseason. Okay, before I get to the GOATs, let's talk Manscaped here. Got to talk Manscaped. Gentlemen, we all strive for gold in our life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. But there's a certain man who goes the extra mile. He's a big hairless winning machine. And when he unzips his pants, he sees platinum. That's right. Manscaped would like to introduce you to their best performance package yet, the Platinum Package 4.0. Manscaped is the leader in below-the-waist grooming. Now you can trust them with the whole shebang. Join 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with code PFF. The brand-new Platinum Package 4.0 is the biggest bundle they've ever offered, giving you a bulk discount on Manscaped's top products. 20% off, free shipping, code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use promo code PFF. All right, I got some new stuff for you guys. Uh, this 
edition of the goats. I had the pictures up there of the players so you could see the rankings, especially if you're watching on YouTube. Apologies to podcasters, but if you want to get on YouTube, you can get some of this goodness by seeing that. But I'm also adding stuff. I got some visualizations where you can see their year-by-year passing efficiency. I'm going to bring up some numbers from Pro Football Reference. Props to Pro Football Reference is where I'm scraping a lot of this data to get guys going all the way back to the 1940s. I'm going to bring up some numbers there where you can see their playoff performances, see their rushing performances throughout their career, and then some other details and pictures and whatnot that I've added to this. Some other analyses that I've done in the past, I'm going to add some stuff in here, especially looking at playoff success where Rodgers is going to get some love here, where I know he's not getting love in Green Bay necessarily, not getting love throughout the NFL for what's happened to him in the playoffs. I'm going to give him some love, or at least I'm going to give him some cover for the poor results that he's had over the last 10 years, never getting past the conference championship. But before I get into all that, I want to explain quickly, and I'll go ahead and bring up the first quarterback here of the top 10 to help explain some of the items here. Okay, let's bring up Roger Staubach here. He is number 10 on the QB GOAT rankings. So the numbers that I have on here, I'll read them out to you for podcasters. You can see them for YouTubers here. He has the 10th career number. Now that career number means the efficiency that he added over a slightly below average player. You'll see this number that I bring up for comparing passing efficiency where it's adjusted net yards per attempt. So it's a, yards per attempt is the baseline. Then it has touchdowns, interceptions, sacks are all accounted for this in here. So it's looking at that number and then it's scaled by 100% being league average for that era. I mean, sorry, just 100 being league average for that era. And any 15 points above that, so up to 115, that means you're about standard deviation better than most quarterbacks at that point in time 15 points below so 85 and below one standard deviation worse and so on they can get up as high as into the 150s for some of these players on the greatest seasons of all time passing efficiency wise and of course it can get down very low but we're not going to see a lot of that with these passers here so the career number that i have for staubach here matches his overall rating it's 10th and that means over the course of his career the total value added during those regular seasons through his passing and also bonuses added for rushing. And we'll talk about Roger with rushing here. Roger the Dodger, they used to call him because he also could run the ball pretty well. Then that's about 60% of the equation is the career regular season value. The peak and Staubach's peak here is number eight. That is the best rolling five-year period of value added during the regular season. That is 20% of the equation here. Staubach, I'll explain how he had a good peak, especially climbing up at the end of his career before, unfortunately, it was shortened a little bit early. And playoffs. So this is the value they're adding in the playoffs. They get credit for good performances in the playoffs, above average quarterback type of performances in the playoffs. Just going to a lot of playoff games is not going to help you. Now, if you've gone to more playoff games, you have a better chance of accumulating value. But just going and having your defense or your running game drag you to Super Bowls is not going to give you a lot of playoff credit according to my calculation and it's probably something that some people will disagree with because they remember the rings but they don't necessarily remember how certain poor performances quarterbacks sneak through to the next round I'm not giving them credit in those types of instances okay so let's go through Starbucks uh, numbers here I'm covering 1970 or maybe I'll remove myself for a second here okay so this is his passing efficiency through the years again There is 
100 is the baseline number. So he came into the league, and he was a player who, starting in 1970, so he started, he actually got into the NFL in 1969. He did not start. He played through 1979, all for the Dallas Cowboys. So the let's, let's talk about his accolades first before I get into some of the specifics here. So he's a Hall of Famer, but he has no All-Pro selection. So he was never deemed, at least according to the 50 Associated Press voters, he was never deemed as being the first-team All-Pro guy. He does have a second-team All-Pro in 1971, um, which the AP2 is a designation on there that you'll see in Pro Football Reference for that. He received MVP votes, though, in three different seasons. He came in second one season, fourth, and fourth another time. He is on the all-decade team for the 1970s, and he was a selection to the NFL 100 team. So nine quarterbacks made it into the NFL 100 team, nine modern-era quarterbacks. One of those quarterbacks is Roger Staubach. So he he attended the U.S. Naval Academy. He won the 1963 Heisman Trophy. And after graduation, he served in the Navy, including a tour of Vietnam. So when he joined the Dallas Cowboys in 1969, which is not shown on this chart because he didn't really play, he was a 27-year-old rookie. He didn't play much his first two seasons, so he had poor efficiency his first season where he actually played in his second year in the league. But after that, he played a lot, and he did miss his fourth season with a separated shoulder. So if you look, the one thing that will jump out here versus some of these other quarterbacks that you'll see eventually is the fact that there just aren't that many seasons on here. 1970 doesn't really count. So when we take 1970 out of the equation, we're basically talking about eight starting seasons. That's why the peak play was important for Staubach versus what he did in over his career, which was just held back by the fact that he didn't have that many starting seasons. But he was really, really good when he did play. He led the NFL in adjusted net yards per attempt four of his eight starting seasons. He led the Cowboys to an 85-29 and 29 record over his career, six NFC championship games, four Super Bowl appearances, and two titles. And he was also, as I hinted at earlier, he was known as Roger the Dodgers. So not only do we have this great passing efficiency, when we go to his rushing efficiency here or his rushing accumulation – Starting with his first real starting season in 1971, going all the way through the end of his career, we retired at 37. He was a guy that was putting up, you know, 200, 300 and something rushing yards, a full season, three to four touchdowns, a full season. That helps add to his efficiency, helps add to those peak seasons. Now, unfortunately for Staubach, um, his career was cut short, as I mentioned, but even so, even with that, he has a lot of big, big numbers. So he scored a lot of, of records in his career, even when it came down to the very end of his career, which is pretty weird to say that in his final season, 1979, in his age 37 season, he had career highs for completions, passing yards, touchdown passes, just 11 interceptions on 27 touchdown passes during an era where they threw a lot of interceptions. But unfortunately, at the conclusion of that season, after suffering what he counts as his 20th concussion, including six concussions, when he says that he was basically knocked out, uh, a doctor told him that brain tests were fine at the, at the moment, but he could have life-altering consequences if he continued to play, and he chose to retire there and was succeeded at quarterback by Danny White. So again, Naval Academy, a tour in Vietnam at the beginning of his career, a missed season in the middle for a shoulder problem, and then 
ending his career early due to concussions that really compressed the time that that he had going on there. As far as the supporting cast is concerned, obviously they had a great defense there. But even when you look at the Hall of Famers that he played with on offense, you know, two two Hall of Famers, both of his wide receivers, Bob Hayes and Drew Pearson, were Hall of Famers. But neither of them were Hall of Famers in the traditional sense of being voted in five to ten years after their careers were over. They both made it as senior or old-time members, Bob Hayes in 2009, Drew Pearson in 2021. So we're talking about decades after they completed playing, which, you know, it's still the Hall of Fame. We're going to give him credit. It's still the Hall of Fame, but it's not really the high, high level offensive talent that he was throwing to. So I wouldn't take away that much from what Staubach has done based upon the offensive talent that he played with. Tony Dorsett's another guy. We're in the second half of Staubach's career. He did play with that. And I think that's probably the most influential Hall of Famer who he played with through his career. Um, the playoffs. Let's talk playoffs. Because playoffs are going to be important, especially when we're talking about Staubach, who's a top 10 guy in the playoffs. Starting with 1971, when they won a championship, he wasn't great. He wasn't great in that playoffs. But still, if we're talking about putting up an adjusted net yards per attempt of 5.2 yards per attempt, it doesn't sound great. But this is an era where it was more around four to four and a half was an average NFL player. In the next season, he was also around five and a half. And then later in a loss in the Super Bowl, he probably had his best Super Bowl run ever at 6.2 in an era where we're more around 4.2. So again, he's accumulating value over and over again. And he played a lot of games and I give him more credit for these games that happen back in the past where there was no availability of getting a fourth playoff game here. So he wasn't the most efficient player in the playoffs, but he was well above league average plus lots of volume with seven starting 17 different playoff games in his career. So does Staubach belong here? That would be the question for it here is does he belong at number 10? I hinted at the end of the last video that I would have had the number 11 statistical player, Fran Tarkenton, above the number 10 player. And I still believe that Tarkenton, with all of his records, with all of his longevity, playing outdoors in Minneapolis, probably belongs above Staubach. But there's no denying that Staubach was one of the greatest talents, not only passing the ball, not only running the ball, but what he was able to do as far as leading a team in the playoffs. But his his career was very, very short. If he could have had a little bit longer career, he could have been in top five contention. And he would have been a much better contention, I think, also for remembrance in some ways. But even with that, very, very revered player made it to the NFL 100 team. Okay, let's go on to the next slide here. Steve Young is now the QB GOAT number nine. Young is similar to Staubach in shorter career, but unlike Staubach, he had a good peak. Staubach had a good peak. Steve Young had a great peak, the second greatest five-year rolling period in NFL history as far as value added, throwing the ball and running the ball. Now, the playoffs are a little bit lower for Young. He has a Super Bowl, but beyond that Super Bowl run, and it was really just in that Super Bowl itself that Young completely went nuts with six touchdown passes, uh, 24th in the, in the value that he added in his short career. So he doesn't get a big boost from here. If you had had a little bit better number for that playoff number, it probably could have boosted him into the top eight or seven here. But without the career number, without the career length, he just could not get high enough to get even higher than ninth in the rankings here. Okay, let's look at uh, Young through the years. So looking at his passing efficiency, he had eight basic starting seasons with the 49ers. 
for convenience sake, I'm not going to focus too much on what happened with him when he was with the Bucks, but I will talk about it shortly because at the beginning of his career, it was a little bit weird what ended up happening. You know, he had 15 NFL seasons. After two seasons, he played at the USFL with the LA Express. He came back to the NFL. The Bucks took him number one overall in the 1984 supplemental draft. He spent his rookie year sitting with the Bucks, and then he was just awful in his second season. He went 12 and two as a starter. He ranked 27th out of 30 qualifying quarterbacks in adjusted net yards per attempt. He was traded to the 49ers, and then he spent four years backing up Joe Montana. So that only leaves these eight true starting seasons. But what an incredible eight starting seasons there were. We have two MVPs here in 92 and 94. We have one first team all pro in 93. And then three more second team all pros in 95, 98, 97, and 98. So there's almost an accolade for every season here. Six out of eight starting seasons for Young. He has some sort of high level accolade here. And his efficiency that he's putting up in these seasons, we're talking about multiple standard deviations above what you would see from uh, normal quarterbacks in this thing. So this eight-year stretch from 91 to 98, it was really the most efficient ever. Um, he led the NFL in adjusted net yards per attempt four times. And then if you look, so he's number one four times out of these eight seasons in passing efficiency. The other four seasons, he was second, 11th, third, and fourth. So other than that 11th season, fourth is the worst that he was on any of these other seasons. And, you know, he was an incredible athlete. I think we've all seen that touchdown run against the Minnesota Vikings. That was very, that was very famous, but we cannot sleep on the very high levels that he had rushing the ball. Once he started in, in 91, and this wasn't during his young prime where he's running around in his twenties. This is from age 30 season through age 37 season. He still is consistently putting up 400, 500 yards a season, four to seven or three to seven touchdowns every single season that adds a ton of value. And again, it's quantified as part of this formula and it's something that boosts him up to having such a huge, huge peak number in his success. Going to the playoffs here. Again, he doesn't have the greatest numbers. His adjusted net yards per attempt in the playoffs is six. It was much higher than that during his regular seasons with the San Francisco 49ers. But I think I want to highlight the 1994 season because in 1994, they went through, won the Super Bowl. In that playoffs, he averaged 8.6 adjusted net yards per attempt through nine touchdowns, no interceptions, through for 623 yards in those three games. But it was really the Super Bowl that was absolutely incredible. And if you look at the numbers here for the Super Bowl 29, I believe, against the San Diego Chargers, his passing, he was 24 of 36, 325 yards, nine yards per attempt, six touchdowns, no interceptions. And he rushed for 49 yards uh, on five carries. This is probably statistically the greatest Super Bowl performance in NFL history. So Steve Young does add that, does have that to his resume as someone who came up big in that one playoff run, but probably didn't win enough. If you're going to go back and look at all of these years, again, I'm saying that he's the number one efficiency passer year after year after year. He had this eight season run to only come away with that one Super Bowl is probably seen as being a failure somewhat on his part. So, you know, that is unfortunate. 
And it was not even getting to the Super Bowl in all of these different years. That's what made it somewhat of a disappointment for Young. Now, as far as how he's perceived, what I think is interesting is there is a big disconnect with these stats, these overwhelming stats, and how he's perceived. I think there are some people who put Steve Young way, way up there in the conversation, but there are many others that don't. He was not selected to the all-decade team for the 1990s. The two selections were John Elway and Brett Favre. Those are hard guys to, to deal with. Don't get me wrong. But I think I would have squeezed Elway into the 1980s and gotten rid of Dan Fouts and then had a place for Steve Young in the 90s since he played eight of those years in the 90s and led the NFL in every single efficiency category you could have, led the NFL in quarterback rushing during that decade and only trailed Favre in terms of the huge passing numbers that he was putting up with, with big, big volume. So he didn't make the, the all-decade team from the 1990s. And then some information that I got, I cannot attest to the – uh, the validity of this information because it came from a Twitter response that I got here from at PG con B uh, where it looks at some unofficial numbers for the NFL 100 team voting that happened a few years back. And there are 26 different voters. And according to these unofficial numbers that he had collected, Steve Young got zero. He got zero votes amongst these 26 voters for making the NFL 100 team. He did not make the NFL 100 team. And it looks like he was not even close. I mean, Troy Aikman got votes. Joe Namath got votes. Aaron Rodgers got votes. Terry Bradshaw got votes. But Steve Young did not get any votes. For To me, that seems a little bit off based upon just how thoroughly he dominated there. So why isn't he getting votes? Why is he maybe not getting the respect we might think that he deserves? Well, I think it's hard where you're preceded by Montana on one end who won more than you when it comes to Super Bowls. And that reputation is always going to be there for Montana. You're always going to be a second fiddle to someone on your own team. So to be considered to be an NFL 100 guy, uh, greatest quarterback of all time, top 10 quarterback of all time by this measure, it's hard when you already have Joe Montana where you know is going to get in for sure. And I have Joe Montana higher on this list of statistical quarterbacks too. So even the stats beyond the narrative say Montana was the guy. You play with Jerry Rice. Montana played with Rice. But again, you play with Jerry Rice. You can't be seen as more. The system is Jerry Rice. You didn't play with Bill Walsh as, as Montana did most of his career. But that system carried through to what you were doing there. So a product of the system, product of Jerry Rice. And Jerry Rice, I think, has a credible case for being the greatest football player, the greatest NFL player of all time. You didn't get Rice early in his career, but it was ages 29 through 36. And for all of his full seasons that he played, he played seven full seasons, Rice did, during that time. He was first team All-Pro in five of those seasons, and he made the Pro Bowl in the other two seasons. You get a little bit of Terrell Owens on the end of his career, strong offensive line, and a great defense. And on the back end of your career, Jeff Garcia comes in, and I, I talked about Garcia in the statistical goats. He ranked 40th. That Garcia was sneaky pretty good. And if Garcia can put up sneaky, pretty good numbers in a particular system, there can be an idea that Young, while better than Garcia, maybe his numbers, maybe his eye-popping efficiency numbers that he put up as a passer, which didn't lead to the commensurate Super Bowls that you would hope for, maybe those numbers can be discounted somewhat and we can write off some of those numbers. I think that's a mistake. 
I think Young is pretty solid. But again, when you get up near the top 10 in any sort of category, I would rank Young probably a bit higher than the voters who gave him zero NFL 100 votes. But I wouldn't rate him much higher than this, or I wouldn't rate him much higher than ninth or 10th overall, um, despite the tremendous success that he had statistically. All right, let's go on to next on the list, Aaron Rodgers. He was the thumbnail for this YouTube video, and I put him on there because it's weird to think of Rodgers right now in this moment in time, a player who has gone from so far as being revered, the next coming, the most talented quarterback ever, in some people's minds, probably a better than coin flip chance that he would end up being the greatest quarterback of of all time at one point, to falling down quite a bit for a multi-year stretch, uh, and then coming back up with an MVP these last two seasons, yet even with the MVP the last two seasons because of the lack of playoff success. And again, I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to be a Rodgers defender here when it comes to the playoffs. The lack of playoff success has been something that even Packers fans, when there are discussions of should Rodgers come back, do we want him back? There's even rumblings of maybe moving on from Aaron Rodgers, maybe moving on from a top 10 greatest quarterback of all time. It's, it seems silly to me, but that gives you an idea of how the sentiment can fly all over the place with Aaron Rodgers, even when he's coming off of back-to-back MVP seasons. Okay, so let's talk Rodgers. Four-time MVP, four-time first-team All-Pro, one-time second-team All-Pro, one-time Super Bowl champion in 2010, and he was the Super Bowl MVP. So I think the important number when it comes to the Super Bowl is 2010. That's a long time ago. It's 2021, and he has not been even back to the Super Bowl since that 2010 season. If you look at how his career has progressed, he has had an above-average efficiency number, above that 100 in the adjusted net yards per attempt number his entire career, yet... After having a series of years where he won the MVP, second team all pro, won the MVP again. So he won the MVP in 2011 and 2014. 2015 to, to the, through 2019, he struggled. For Rodgers, he struggled. He always had above average efficiency, but these were years where he was consistently being ranked as the best quarterback in the NFL when you did these executive type of rankings in the offseason. And that was a little bit flummoxing for the fact that he was not playing at that level. He played poorly in 2015. That was the year that Jordy Nelson suffered an ACL tear in the offseason, and things just did not click on there. 2016, he had a little bit of a bounce back year. 2017, he only played seven games, but he was pretty poor in those games. 2018, again, a little bit of a bounce back year, but not on the old Aaron Rodgers level. And then 2019, a lot of team success in the first year of Matt LaFleur getting there. A lot of team success, not so much as far as how well that Aaron Rodgers actually played from an efficiency standpoint. And that was at the point in time where friend of the pod, Ben Baldwin, wrote his article where it said, no longer elite, talking about how Rodgers hadn't been playing elite for a long time there. And I think it was a fair assessment to say at that point in time, looking backwards, he was no longer elite. But let's give Ben some credit here because he seemed to kickstart Rodgers back up here. And in the second and third years with LaFleur, he has put up back-to-back MVP seasons. And you see how his efficiency has jumped back up again, putting him up near the top of the NFL the last two seasons. This arc, though, that Rodgers has had where he was considered to be the best quarterback in the NFL 
even during that 2015 to 2019 downstretch. And now he's maybe seen as the best by some people, but maybe a little bit lower. And some people may are, are even favorable to people like Tom Brady right now of the old guard, where Rodgers, at least in the regular season, has continued to outperform him. Okay, so let's talk about surrounding talent because I think that's an interesting question with Rodgers. I talk about it with a lot of the different players here. So he's had three distinct sets of receivers that he's played with. Devonta Adams is really the only guy who's a Hall of Fame type of player that he's played with, but his three distinctive sets were back when he won the 2010 Super Bowl and the 2011 MVP. He had Greg Jennings, Donald Driver, and James Jones. All, you know, jo- Jones is not... Great, I would say. Driver is a bit aged at that point. He had his best years with Brett Favre. And Jennings was a decent receiver. And he had Donald Lee and Tom Tom Crabtree at tight end. So not great. He had an MVP season again in 2014 with Jordy Nelson and Randall Cobb, where they both made the Pro Bowl. But neither one of those guys, I would say, is elite Hall of Fame type of talent. So Devontae Adams has been the guy. But even for Adams, Rodgers has essentially been the same player with and without him on the field since 2016. Um, another friend of the pod, Lord Reeves, uh, Rich Rebar, put together some information on what are Aaron Rodgers' stats with and without Devontae Adams since 2016. And we don't have a lot of snaps without Adams, but we do have 523 dropbacks, which is a season's worth, almost a season's worth of dropbacks. And if you look at how Rodgers has performed without Adams on the field, he has slightly higher yards per attempt slightly better yards per completion, slightly better expected points added per drop back. So his numbers are, for all intents and purposes, even with and without Devontae Adams. What will happen to him this year? I don't know. He's getting quite old. It's not that they just don't have Adams, but they don't have really anyone around him. But I think it's fair to say that Rodgers, at least when it comes to his receivers, has not been someone who needs high, high-end talent, Hall of Fame type of talent to be successful. On the other side, I will say pass blocking has been a major strength for Rodgers during his career. The Packers have only had two starting seasons for Aaron Rodgers where the team's pass blocking grade, and we're only going back to 2000, you know, we're going back to, we have grades going back to 2006, so we cover this here. We only have two seasons where they did not have a ten, top 10 pass blocking grade for the Packers. Six seasons. Six of Aaron Rodgers' seasons, they were first or second in pass blocking. So I think that might be even a little bit more of a concern of his going into this year, whether he can play at that MVP level, is is Bakhtiari going to be back to normal? Can they keep everything together? Can they continue to gel this unit, which has been one of the best, best of all time, probably the best pass blocking team during, if you aggregate and look on average over the course of Rodgers' career. Okay, but it's not, like I mentioned before, it's not all sunshine and rainbows here for the Packers. There's a lot of concern about what Rodgers does in the playoffs. So I looked at all of Aaron Rodgers' playoff games. And if you look at the two main metrics that I like to look at, so his offensive grade, so the grade that we gave him for this game, PFF grading, and his expected points added per play, it looks pretty good. He's only had four games where he had a below average expected points added per play in the playoffs. And he's only had five games where he had a below average PFF grade. He's only had one game where he had both a below average PFF grade and a below average expected points added per play. Now he doesn't have some of the highest, highest end games when it comes to expected points added. So maybe that's part of it, but I think a lot of the lack of success for Rogers is just 
if the wrong game, you have an average game where you need a great game. If that happens on the wrong playoff week against the wrong opponent, you're out. There's no 16-game season. There's no working your way back. There's no relax and we'll come back during the playoffs. You're out at that point in time. So we always want to figure out, is it Rodgers? Is it a narrative? How much of this is really on him? I think the numbers point to the fact that he's been pretty good. And if you go a bit further, I wanted to look exactly, if we could calculate exactly how many games we would have expected the Packers to win versus what they actually won based upon Aaron Rodgers' playoff performance. There's a pretty strong relationship between the quarterback, expected points added per play, so your efficiency between the quarterback, and your win probability in different games. So I looked at all these games. I put together a quick little regression model on it where I said, let's take the expected points added per play for the quarterback. Let's look at whether or not they won or lost, and let's figure out, go back for every single game that a quarterback has played in the playoffs, assign an expected win probability based upon how well they played. So if they played above average, they would have a higher than 50% win probability. If they were off the charts good, they would have a 90% win probability in that game. And the flip side of things. So I looked and assigned all that. And then I said, let's let's count up the expected wins based upon how well quarterbacks played and compare them to the actual playoff wins that these quarterbacks have had. Now, I can only go back to 2000. So there's some guys who may not be in there. We don't have expected points data. But I looked at some of the big quarterbacks here. I looked at Rodgers, Brady, Rivers, Breeze, Wilson, Ryan, Roethlisberger, and Peyton Manning. And Rodgers actually has the highest expected win percentage of any of these quarterbacks because he had the highest, if you took those individual games, you looked at how well he performed and expected points added, he had the highest numbers there. He was expected to win 12.4 wins since 2000. He has 11 wins. So it's slightly lower, but slightly lower is can be very, very bad versus some of these other quarterbacks. If we look at Tom Brady, his expected points added. And again, this, this includes a lot of the stuff back in the 2000s where it wasn't Brady, the Brady that we know, who broke out really after his 2007 season. He is expected to win 54% of the time versus Rodgers 59% of the time. His expected wins was a little bit under 20, and he has 25 expected wins. So he really outperformed because of the team around him, mostly. Maybe it's because of how he played in special moments where he didn't have the expected points added, but he was clutch in certain moments. I guess that's a possibility. But I think it's mostly how the team and the defense around him ended up playing, that he vastly outperformed his expectation based upon Brady's play itself. Poor Philip Rivers. Uh, very close to Brady as far as his expected win percentage. But only, only has one playoff win versus a 6.4 expected. Poor guy there. See, and Breeze is a 9-9. Nine to nine. Wilson, 1-9, expectation of 8.2. Ryan, 1-4, expectation of 4.9. Roethlisberger, 1-8, expectation of 7.7. And then Manning, 1-11, and only an expectation of 8. A lot of that, though, is due to that Super Bowl run in 2015 where he just played extremely poorly, dragging down those numbers. So the larger picture is Rodgers is really the only guy who's, other than Rivers, who's under what you would expect his expectation to be on this. And there are certain players like Tom Brady who are way over their expectation. I know I'm going to get accused of Brady hating, but I do think these are this is important context, at least when we're talking about Aaron Rodgers and his playoff success. One thing I think you can ding him on, and I don't know how much this comes out during the playoffs or not, is I looked at his conservatism in avoiding interceptions, and there is some indication that he doesn't properly risk adjust his play. If you look at quarterbacks and you say, 
if you have a t- less than a 25% win probability in a game, so you're behind, you're playing way from behind, how do you adjust the type of throws you're making? Meaning, are you throwing the ball further down the field? Are you throwing it more in the middle of the field, which is a higher chance of interception, but a better chance of completion and a better chance of run after catch? Are you adjusting your throw mix to up your expected points added that you're going to get if you complete the ball, if everything goes right, basically? But to do that, you're going to take more interceptions. And Rodgers, you know, famously does not take interceptions. Even went through a, a stretch a few years ago where he didn't throw an interception in, you know, 200 passes, but he was losing games during that time, which is a weird thing to do. So Rodgers is more in the Breeze, Bridgewater, Sam Bradford type of bucket as far as how he plays from behind. Whereas if you look at players like Brady, uh, Peyton Manning, and Patrick Mahomes, they're taking a lot more chances. They're risking throwing interceptions a lot more when playing from behind. So I think that is a valid criticism of Rodgers. And maybe some of that has come through in close games, in games from behind, in the playoffs, that Rodgers has not been able to perform at the level you would have liked to see because of that reason. So where can Rodgers get on the list now? We have, you know, on, on, the, the, on the QB GOAT list right now, Rodgers is eighth. He has a couple of years left on this Green Bay contract. He could probably move up a spot or two. I don't think he's going to get into the top five. His career started a little bit too late. But if he really need, if he could get that playoff success component, and if he could get another you know MVP MVP light season, maybe he can get fifth. Maybe, but again, it's really really tight up there in the top five without the fact that he did not have the beginning of that career there. Now, if he does Tom Brady, if he does Tom Brady and goes on and starts, you know, chugging water and housing avocados all day long, you know, maybe he can get to the top five here. But I think he's going to peak out before that. And again, Rodgers was someone who did not make the NFL 100 team. He's, he would have been the youngest player by far to have gone on there, but he did not make it to that level um, and did not get a ton of votes out of the 26 voters. Only got a couple of votes there for Rodgers. Okay, let's move on here. Bye-bye, A-Rod. Johnny Unitas is next. He is number seven on the GOAT list, seven career, seven peak, 13 in the playoffs. Unitas is someone who I think could be properly ranked as high as third. I would not be against Johnny Unitas being third if you had him in your ranking. I don't think you can go much lower, though, than seven. There are some things working against him in terms of the statistics and how it works out here that I'll talk about that lower him a spot or two versus where he probably should be. Um, But this is a solid ranking, I would say, for Unitas, especially if you're someone like me who probably discounts guys who are playing in the 50s and 60s a little bit versus what we're seeing today. Yeah, the rules were tougher. It was harder to have longevity, all that sorts of stuff. But to be a high-end quarterback in 2021 or in 2010 let's face it it's a whole different ball game uh you're not you know smoking cigarettes in the in the locker room like len dawson in that picture um i think maybe you could but uh but you're probably not doing that at this day and age and level uh versus the training and everything else you're not playing against you know playing against truckers and mailmen out there uh okay johnny unitas let's look at look over his career here first i think it's an important thing to say to look at he's got three mvps And then he also has a couple of other first-team All-Pro selections 
which means he was the best quarterback in the NFL there, but he didn't win an MVP. So in today's era, those would probably be MVPs most of the time also. So that would be like a five MVP type of guy. That's why he is such a well-respected player, maybe the most well-respected player. If you could look back in time and compare era to era for everyone else, he's definitely number one of that era, but it may be even at a higher level than we see with some debates over different guys today. So he has five consensus All-Pro selections, and he was the 1960s All-Decade team. He was also part of the NFL 100, a unanimous selection to the NFL 100 team. All 26 voters voted for him there. So he was, like I mentioned, you know, the, the well-respectedness, but I think important when looking at his career arc is to say what hurts him a bit is that at the end of his career, So he wins the MVP in 1967. He's injured in the preseason of 1968. Doesn't really play that season. Comes back. He has another, you know, five seasons where he only has one season where he's throwing it above average efficiency. Those numbers hurt. Hurt his calculation. If he retired, if he just retired after that injury in 1968, he would move up maybe a spot or two in these rankings. So I think that's interesting context to think about when you're looking at him and where he should actually be on these rankings. Okay. So Unitas, he led the NFL in passing four different times in touchdowns. Also, he led TD INT differential four different times, net yards per attempt four different times. And he set the career records for all the major passing marks, completions, yards, touchdowns. One point potentially against Unitas is that he did play a pretty insane level of talent. And that suggests the fact that, you know, this is a team that was basically going to the playoffs every year. And in that era, the playoffs meant you were one of the top two teams in the NFL. If you look at who he played with, he played with arguably the best offensive lineman of that generation in guard Jim Parker, the best receiver of that generation, Raymond Berry, and also the best tight end of that generation, John Mackey. So there's a ton, a ton of talent when we talk about who was stacked up with Unitas on that Colts team. Um, and let's talk about the playoffs here for Unitas. There were some big performances. So you have one Super Bowl only, though, but you have two NFL championships before we had the Super Bowl. And of course, there was the famous loss in the Super Bowl to the Jets in losing to to Joe Namath in that in that performance. So the two championships that he won before, he had pretty high efficiency there. He had a six adjusted yards per attempt over his playoff career, which goes well above the average of around five in that era. And that adds to his number. Now, he only has nine total playoff games, eight of which he started because, again, you just did not play many playoff games until we start to get to 1970 and later, where you can actually play a few different playoff games to accumulate some of those stats there. So, you know, I don't have a ton to say about United. It's harder to recollect some things that were happening in eras well, well before mine. But I do think it's important that he gets the respect of the unanimous designation of the NFL 100. I guess the only thing that I would hedge slightly is the talent that I talked about in playing. And it probably doesn't look great that the fact that he, when he was out for the season in 1968, backup Earl Morrill came in and the Colts scored and won more they won more games and scored more points than they did in 1967 when um, Unitas was named the MVP. All right. This will be the last one in this 
10 through six category. And I have a feeling the public perception is going to be too low, too low on this here, but we'll, we'll get to the top five. I mean, if you want to talk about modern, modern guys and not have old guys, really old guys in there, then Montana would make the top five, even in my list. So Montana is number six on the QB goat list. He's five for his career, 10 for peak. So he doesn't have the peak of some of these other players. Again, that's 20% of the calculation. So it holds him down slightly. He's fifth in the playoffs though. Big number for Montana in the playoffs. I'll go over specifically some of that. So Montana had a couple different phases to his career the 49ers for several years, he got injured and then was basically Wally pipped by uh, Steve Young and then moved over for a couple of years at the end of his career to the Kansas City Chiefs, where both of those years, he wasn't great. He wasn't at an MVP level or anything like that, but he had pretty good efficiency even those last two years of his career where he was an older player. Uh, let's talk about the accolades here. He has two MVPs back-to-back in 1989 and 1990. He was uh, all-pro, first-team all-pro another year, and then second-team all-pro a couple of years. So you can maybe see that would be like a three-MVP type of guy in today's era where only quarterbacks win the MVP award. If we think about his numbers in the playoffs, I first will say... Not only were the numbers good, but the narratives are pretty good in the playoffs. He has probably two of the most famous plays in playoff history, one of them in the NFC Championship game. And when something's called the catch, that's just as known as the catch to Dwight Clark in the back of the end zone in the NFC Championship game to defeat the Dallas Cowboys by one point. And then you had a 30 seconds left come from behind Super Bowl touchdown to John Taylor against the Cincinnati Bengals. Those are two of the best known catches in playoff history. Montana owns both of them, giving a big boost in the narrative department. He was also a unanimous selection to the NFL 100 team. So there's no lack of respect for Montana amongst the football media and analysts and players and coaches who were picking that award. Let's go to the playoffs because big time, big time numbers for him in the playoffs. Seven adjusted net yards per attempt in the playoffs. That'd be well, well over what an average number was over his career average number here. If you look at the four Super Bowl wins, especially the final two in 88 and 89, when he was winning those, you know, kind of in that MVP era in his early 30s, 12.1 adjusted yards per attempt in 1989, 9.3 in 1988 19 touchdowns and one interception in those six games in the playoffs averaging over nine yards per attempt in both of those seasons just I mean it's basically unbeatable type of quarterback play that Montana put together for multiple Super Bowl seasons the other two Super Bowls he was good not great in his 1981 and 84 Super Bowls but he was really unbeatable in those other Super Bowls and I think that's what puts you in a high high level when I'm looking at playoff rankings now let's get to surrounding talent because all the different things you're going to say to knock Steve young, you could probably say to knock Joe Montana. Some, I mean, he played with Bill Walsh his entire career, the greatest coach of all time, who was really ahead of the curve at that point, taking it to a quick passing shorter depth of target type of game and revolutionize things that everyone followed on. But when you're a year or two in advance and in advance of the defensive adjustments, that can give a big boost to 
your numbers and your efficiency that Montana got there. He played with Jerry Rice again, the greatest receiver of all time. Played with two other wide receivers who made multiple Pro Bowls, Dwight Clark and John Taylor. And he threw to two of the greatest receiving backs in history. And these receiving backs became very important in this system. Roger Craig for the 49ers. And then he was a little bit on the old side. Marcus Allen with the Chiefs. He was also there with Montana in Kansas City. And he always had okay tight ends. You know, Brent Jones was a pretty good tight end and others. So I think that Montana is deserving of a top five, top six guy. But if there's anyone of this 10 to six range who could be a little bit overhyped according to narratives because of the playoff success. I mean, Montana is often still given as an acceptable answer for the greatest quarterback of all time in some, especially before Brady started piling on the championships um, the last few years of his career here um, or the last four years, I guess he's pulled in another two championships, especially before that, while Montana was at the four championships, he was an acceptable answer because of the Super Bowl victories as being the greatest of all time. In my opinion, there are only really two quarterbacks who I'll discuss who will be number one and number two here, according to the stats, who are really acceptable answers for the greatest of all time. So Montana's probably a little bit overhyped from there. But though, although I can see, and I will say it's valid to have some complaints about the fact that he's sixth here, maybe as opposed to being anywhere between third and fifth would also be appropriate and something that I would not complain about in the slightest bit. Okay. That was 10 through six. You will get your top five on Wednesday. I'll discuss whatever else. If we get some information on, you know, rookies showing up, whether they're in, in best shape, still in the best shape of their life season in training camps over the next couple of days. Maybe I'll discuss that a little bit at the top, but then we'll talk one through five. I've only revealed one of those guys, their exact ranking, and that's Dan Marino at number four. Uh, but you will see the rest exactly where, where they come out on Wednesday. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Go ahead. Follow me on Twitter at Kevin Cole PFF. Follow the pod also on Twitter. I, I send out a lot from the pod account there at unexpected underscore points rate review the pod. Let me know what you think about this exercise here. I appreciate so much everyone tuning in and watching along on YouTube. Otherwise I will talk to everyone on Wednesday. Thanks so much.